Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and coming up on today's episode, it's going to be a big, big deal for me. When I was growing up, I used to love the Adam and Joe show. I've been obsessed with the podcasts, the radio shows, all the little jingles and films they used to make. So to know that I'm going to be joined by Joe Cornish is really a dream come true. I've really been a massive fan of his work and his debut, which still blows my mind that it's his debut, Attack the Block, is one of my favourite British horrors of all time. And I still can't believe that's his first go at directing a big film and it's it's such a successful and well-made film. And anyone that's at this point listening going, Attack the Block, I don't think I've seen that. Stop the podcast and go and watch it. It's an absolute masterpiece. The horror in it is so well done. John Boyega's in it, and that's his debut, and we'll look at the career he's had from it. It's so, so good. But he's here today to talk to me about The Kid Who Would Be King. And I can't sit here and say, oh, I've just been to see it, because I haven't. But I'm planning on seeing it on Sunday. I'm going to go to a late show, and when most of the kids hopefully aren't there, I can chill out, put my feet up, and enjoy it. The reviews are saying it's great. It's a really good, fun family film, and especially for the kids. So I'm really, really looking forward to the kind of a nostalgia feel and that whole great family film, which we don't get anymore. So as always, you know the score by now. I like to touch base and talk about my last episode as well. So I was joined by Shauna MacDonald, one of my favourite actresses and such a beautiful, beautiful woman. And it was such an honour to have her on the podcast. We got to talk all about one of my favourite other British horror films, The Descent, and her cameo in Star Wars. A lot like Joe, actually, a big horror British debut and was in Star Wars. But that wasn't deliberate to follow up with this. But a lot of people I saw tweet to me and Shauna saying how much they enjoyed the discussion. They loved it. They went and then checked out The Descent again and they're re-watching it again if they loved it anyway. And that they were really enjoying her talking about the making of and the experience behind the film and working with Neil Marshall. And it was a great, great pleasure to have on the show. But let's get back onto today's episode. As you heard at the start, I'm joined by Joe Cornish. So here is me and Joe talking all things film. Thanks for joining me anyway. It's a pleasure. How's your day of press going? Are you sick of answering the same question or is it all right? You know, you're only my second interview today. I got on a train and arrived here in Birmingham and I'm about to go and do a Q&A at a screening, but you're, you're my second interviewer, so I'm, I'm fresh. That's good. Uh, fresh, exciting, fresh as the summer breeze. So someone's warmed you up and I'm now ready to take you on. Yeah, that sounds slightly distasteful, but yes. You know what I mean. I do know what you mean. I like your you've got a your you've got a sort of Mac and Me based graphic on your podcast, haven't you? I have. It's one of my favourite guilty pleasures. Have you got the new Blu-ray? I annoyingly with Screen Factory and all this, they're region locked, so I haven't invested in an unlocked player, which I should do. They're very they're they're comparatively cheap now, you know. Reg- I know it's bad, players. isn't it? You get a little Sony one for about a hundred quid now. I know there's no Blu-ray. there's no excuse as well. I love John Carpenter films, and all their ones have got great versions of the the uh. horrors and stuff. But I will do, and I'll get Mac and Me. Uh, I've just got the brand new poster that's just come out. They made a hundred of them on Bottleneck Gallery in New York, and I managed to get one of the first Mac and Me posters so I'm well chuffed with that wow it's you bad you are a true it? fan do you have your birthday parties at McDonald's I don't um, but that would be a dream I'd probably get arrested now if I'm 36 years old so <laughs> they, they, they show you inside the fridge it's amazing I don't want to know I don't want to know how the milkshakes are made <laughs> I don't want to know any of that I only say this because of the classic McDonald's sequence in Mac and Me where they built a whole um, 
the whole branch of McDonald's right. And then we get the teddy bear dancing on the counter with the staff. And obviously it wasn't a plug, it wasn't any sort of, you know, shameful no. endorsement. It was definitely for just the legit storyline of Mac surviving on Coca-Cola. Yeah, it was, they had to um, negotiate very hard with, with McDonald's to get permission yeah. to, to use Ronald. And that and that M on the logo is the McDonald's M, so yeah. I haven't actually yeah. thought about that. I might get sued, but oh well. No, it's all very good. Um, it's very good advertising for Mickey D's, one of the world's best re- best restaurants, classiest restaurants. We better talk about films and start the interview, otherwise we'll I'll be like ten minutes left, and we'd have just talked about McDonald's. I we had started. Oh shit! Whoops. <laughs> So what I want to do is talk about when you were growing up. Uh, Obviously, you're a huge, huge movie fan, but what was the films that you were growing as a kid that actually made you fall in love with film? Well, the first movie I saw on my own in the cinema was a movie called The Black Stallion, directed by Carol Ballard, with Mickey Rooney and Terry Garr, and a young actor called Kelly Reno, based on a book by Walter Farley. You know, getting to see a movie on your own as a, ki- as a kid for the first time is a very powerful thing. And it's a great, great children's movie. One of the best children's movies ever made, I think. About a boy that is in a shipwreck and he and this stallion get washed up on a desert island and they survive together and um, all sorts of business happens. So that was very big for me. Close Encounters was very big for me because my uncle, Simon was the art editor of the British UFO magazine. I, he took me along to see it when I was pretty young, and I, I believed the whole thing. I thought aliens and UFOs definitely exist. Uh, I thought it was pretty likely I would be abducted fairly soon, and it was a very powerful experience for me, that movie. And then I guess the third one I would cite would be E.T. the Extraterrestrial, that I saw also on my own in, in, in New York, the first time I ever went to America. And the thing about all these movies is they all had characters in it that were around my age, maybe not Close Encounters, but Black Stallion and E.T., the lead character, was a similar sort of age to me. And there's something amazing about seeing an actor your own age in a movie set in a recognisable reality. That felt very powerful to me. Yeah, I mean, I was the same with stuff like Goonies and Gremlins. I used to watch Billy on Gremlins thinking, I could be that person, that that could happen to me. I want the, you know, the Mogwai bought for me for my Christmas present and stuff like that. So right. it's a nice feeling, isn't it, of that nostalgia now, looking back thinking, I remember being in the same mindset as the films I was watching. It is a nice feeling, and it's something, you know, I wanted to try and do with The Kid Who Would Be King, because I, as a film goer, I don't see that sort of movie out there anymore. Everything's either sort of hyperkinetic animation or superhero movies it's you you don't get movies for kids with kids in them anymore especially ones that are set in a world that the audience can recognize um so that's what i tried to do with the kid who will be king i want to get to that film in a moment but just before we do um what i want to know is what was it that made you want to switch around and be behind the camera because obviously you were famous for being in the adam and joe show you were you were very the focus of obviously that show um when it got cancelled did that then inspire you to think do you know what i want to try and direct well you know i always wanted to direct i went to film school and trained as a director after school and then I would, when we were at school and when me and Adam made silly films, I was always the writer-director man. Yeah. And he was always the star and the producer. So we did a whole bunch of Super 8 movies when we were at school. And then when we eventually got our hands on a video camera, we made lots of stupid 
videos, but I, I'm a terrible giggler. I, I crack up the whole time, and Adam makes me laugh. So even when we were kids, it was clear that my my strengths were as a writer and behind the camera. And then when he got the opportunity to present this show called Takeover TV, which is what we did before the Adam and Joe show, I think I was basically so jealous that he was presenting it. I did everything I could to wheedle my way in front of the camera as well, just because I was competitive. You know, he was always much better than me as a comic performer and at being funny. So I think it's just a question of me ending up back where I belonged. So what was the moment for you that you went from just loving films and obviously watching stuff like E.T. and loving, you know, the thought of being Elliot and all this to actually thinking, how's films made? How do I actually put this together? How do I get behind a camera and actually create something from scratch? I think I used to love the making of programs, you know. Sometimes you'd like to get a, a behind-the-scenes James Bond documentary on TV. Yeah. Or like... Um, I guess it must have been TV documentaries or little EPKs on Barry Norman yeah. that gave me an inkling of how it, it worked. And then it was getting my hands on a Super 8 camera and then a, a video camera that I suppose that was when I first started figuring out how to actually edit stuff. I mean, we used to edit in camera on, on, on VHS, so you'd, you'd only have one go at each thing and you'd press pause and you'd set up the next shot and you take pause off, you know. Um, so I guess I learned by doing. The, the, the tougher thing is learning how to write, and that, because I would always start writing scripts and never finish them. And I think getting to know Edgar and being his friend and working with him really taught me a lot about screenwriting. But in terms of making stuff, it was just trial and error, really. From silly videos I made with Adam all the way to the like the toy movies on Adam and Joe, it was all just a sort of gradual gradual learning curve so you just mentioned edgar wright obviously you were involved in hot fuzz was that something then when you were on set that you were still absorbing all of his work and how he went about stuff and you were constantly like a sponge learning all the sort of skills he's learned yeah i I wasn't actually on set for hot fuzz i i was in it for a day playing one of the csi people yeah i just didn't know if you'd have stayed around and kind of went oh i want to get involved in this I didn't really. It was kind of stupid. I, I was I was in Shaun of the Dead, so I was there for a day on Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. And when Egg, the truth is, when Edgar's directing, he's really in a kind of very intense bubble, and he's not massively communicative. He's very, very, very absorbed, and all directors are. You know, it's just about the actors, the camera, and you when you're directing. You're under massive pressure of time. You don't really have you know, enough mental energy to deal with somebody like me watching or interfering. With Hot Fuzz, I was, it was the press tour I was involved in. As yeah. I kind of, um, I went on the press tour with those guys and had a lot of fun. But really, you know, the first time I walked on set for Attack the Block, the only real experience I had was the TV directing experience I'd, I'd had. You know, I was kind of winging it based on, based on that. So you just obviously mentioned Attack the Block. Now, this is your debut, and that's the way to make a mark. I mean, for me, it's one of the best British horrors 
I've seen and the by far the best monster creation I've seen. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Can we end the interview on that? <laughs> yeah, that's Let's it. Just wrap it up now because it's not going to get better than that, is it? Let's but it's true. It. Like the monster design on that film, it's so simple, but it's so effective, and it still haunts me now. And I've seen the film what ten years ago or oh. something like that. Now it's seven, whatever it is. It was a long time ago. It's eight years, I think, which is scary. Seven but, years. Yeah, that's a long time. Seven. Seven years and one month. And it still, it still gets um, to me now. Well, I appreciate that. Um, they wouldn't scare you if you'd been on the set. No. Where they were just blokes in furry suits. Um, one of them American and one of them French and falling over the whole time and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate that. That was really, uh, you know, um, what's the phrase? Uh, necessity being the mother of invention in terms of not having much money and wanting to do a like a proper creature feature and just trying to figure out a way to do something different and and the idea of making it almost like a like a comic strip um making these two-dimensional shadow puppet creatures that where you could film something in the lens that was 3d but then just rubble the detail out so it worked like almost a um yeah like a shadow puppet yeah uh and yeah and sort of vaguely based on uh, rotoscope techniques I knew existed from Ralph Bashke's Lord of the Rings nice. that I'd seen when I was a kid. I'd been seeing an exhibition about how they made that movie on a barge in the Thames, probably in the 70s. And I remembered them. I remembered a thing where they actually filmed the actors in live action and then painted over them yeah. to make that cartoon. But no, it was. Um, it's interesting how, you know, if you don't have the resources to do what everyone else does you end up doing something that no one else has done it's quite a good discipline i think definitely and it worked i'm glad you think so <laughs> i appreciate that you then you then had a few years of a gap uh obviously you've been involved in a lot of writing with ant-man and tintin and stuff but then mm. my last guest which is quite weird and a bit spooky was um shauna mcdonald who was a guest and um appeared in the last jedi which you did as well um, yes. So that follows on quite nicely. That must have been a, a childhood dream to have your name in a Star Wars film. Well, I'm one of the most important characters in that film, even though I don't have a name. And, you know, having me out of focus in the background of a shot of Oscar Isaacs is a very powerful thing to have in the movie. Um, and I think I'm probably responsible for most of its success. Yeah just by being a big out-of-focus face and then by leaning against a gantry in a louche manner in the background of a second shot. Um, obviously, I don't need to describe those shots because they're so famous and everyone talks about them all the time and there's a lot of discussion on the internet. Who is that amazing guy in the background? What's his story? Can we have a spin-off film based on him? And... Um, it's very flattering to be at the centre of, of 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 such, you know. I'm talking complete rubbish. Obviously, none of that's true. But I was. It was. It was good fun to be in. We were there for a day, and um, I'm friends with Ryan through Edgar. And I think he purposely wanted to put me in a scene with John Boyega as a yeah. little kind of um, Easter egg. But yeah, it's really cool to be in it and to get to visit the set and to get to dress as a rebel soldier. Yeah, it's amazing. Has JJ rung you yet about coming back for episode nine? 
Well, no, and frankly, I'm a little bit um, impatient. I wish she'd hurry up. Yeah, time's running out. Want to know what happens to <laughs> my character? Who doesn't have a name or any distinguishing features whatsoever? Um, and but I'm I'm ready and waiting. Do you know what I mean? And obviously your brand new film which you're promoting at the moment, The Kid Who Would Be King, we just touched upon and you were saying how it's a superhero movie but it's it's very unique because it's actually just for kids and I think every Marvel and DC film we have now is very adult and also children but this film's specifically just for the children and I think that must be a nice feeling when you've grown up with these family films to create one yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a superhero movie. I think the, the point I was trying to make was that most movies for kids you know are either animation or yeah or, or superhero movies now and um i guess i was trying to make the point that the kid who would be king is is not one of those things it's it's kind of connecting to the movies we were talking about earlier movies for kids with kids in them um but yeah it's a, it's 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 a family film it's a big spectacular action adventure quest movie sending modern kids on this on this big adventure um and there's no swearing or throats being ripped out or soft drug use it's very much a pg thing but it's also scary in a fun way and thrilling and it's got big battles and chases and um it's fun for all the family and when it came to casting obviously you got andy circus's son how how did that come about was that something that you were told about like oh this guy's really good you should check him out or did he come along to an audition or how did that happen well both actually we 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 were told he was really good because we we did a massive casting call we saw thousands and thousands of kids we found most of the cast so we found tom taylor who plays lance rihanna doris who plays Kay. we found dean shamu who plays alex's best friend bedders but we were we still couldn't find somebody who we thought could carry the film and the casting process was was completely open it was open to everyone of any kind of background or experience and you know as evidence of that the kid who plays opposite louis is is a kid who'd had no experience whatsoever before. Um, and he's brilliant in the movie. Louis just happened to be incredibly good. And he'd been in one or two things before. And he came in and did an amazing audition. And, yeah, we're very lucky to have found him. And, and he just happens to be the youngest son of Andy Circus and Lorraine Ashbourne. That's not bad, is it, really? That's some good genes there. Yeah, good genes, but also also a very talented kid, yeah. Yeah. In and of his own self. And obviously you've got some established actors as well. You can't get much better than Patrick Stewart. That must have been fantastic to work with such a legend. It was fantastic to work with him. You know, it's always a little bit... Uh, intimidating is the wrong word you know it's a little bit anxious making at first when you're going to meet an icon like that someone you're so used to seeing on on screen but then it's also a great relief when that person turns out to be really friendly and sensible and intelligent and um keen to get into the work you know so yeah it was a, it was a thrill to have him in the movie. What a thrill to have him say dialogue I, I've written and um, perform it and elevate it like he does. It's Yeah, it's incredible. I must say, though, um, my comedy partner, Adam, was quite jealous because he's a crazy Star Trek fan, as you might know. 
I'm not such a Star Trek fan, so I kind of avoided talking about it with Sir Patrick in case it annoyed him. But um, Adam, I think, is frustrated that I didn't get him to say some famous Star Trek lines uh, and dedicate them to Adam, like Beverly, Engage, or um, something like that. But I didn't. I avoided that whole... Thing. Are you two always trying to get one up on each other? So I've, not, I've obviously only just spoken to you for sort of fifteen minutes, but I've got this sense that you're always trying to like, well, I've done this, well, I've done that, you know. Well, um, that's not very good if I've given that impression. But yes, <laughs> it is true, slightly, a little bit. What's he done? That's, mean, what's he done that's quite... got to you the most? Then what's he done where he's like, ah? Well, he's only got one of the most successful podcasts in the country. Well, and... at the moment, I'm going to take that crown off him. That's true. That was a very tactless thing for me to say. <laughs> he's, he's only got the second most successful podcast in the country. Yeah. Um, and he's got very good legs, muscular legs. Yeah. He's got a lovely dog. Yeah. Uh, he's got a lovely family. He lives in Norwich. Well. Wow. Wow. Um, which everyone envies. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he's he's got a life of sparkling achievements. He's a national treasure. But you wrote lines of Patrick Stewart, so... Yeah, exactly. So I win. I've been reading a few of the reviews so far for the film, and obviously it's been out in America, and the people are saying it's got a, a big feel of, like, E.T. That's what I've been reading, so it's good that we've mentioned that film. But also, Time Bandits, is that something that influenced it when you were making it, or is that just the public clutching out of nowhere? No, I love Time Bandits, and I've mentioned it in a bunch of interviews. Good. That was a fantastic movie, you know... Um, it's kind of a, it's like, it, it's Gilliam and it's Cleese and it's got a bunch of Python-esque elements to it, but it's actually a pretty dedicated, straightforward fantasy adventure movie and so inventive and funny and creative and exciting. Amazing villain played by David Warner. Ian Holmes, fantastic in it. The kid, I think he's called Craig Warnock or something, isn't he? Who plays the lead is fantastic. Sean Connery, incredible in it. Um, it's a it's a it's a fantastic movie, isn't it? Don't you love Time Bandits? It's an absolute masterpiece, and the fact that it's mentioned yeah. alongside your film must be a, one of the best compliments you can get. Well, it's only because I mention it in lots of interviews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I've sort of foisted that on foisted that onto my own films. Yeah, yeah. So what about handling the budget of such a big film? Obviously, it's a big, big jump from where you were last at uh, with your debut. Do you, do you feel pressure, or is it just a case of just keep the mindset of you want to create something? Or You just get on with doing it, really, I think. I mean, it's certainly very exciting to walk onto big sets and to stage big battle scenes and to get to go on location and stuff. It's very thrilling, especially when it's an idea that you've written. Yeah, to get to see it all come to life is pretty cool. Um, but you know, your job as a writer director, the the studio have decided to take a punt on your project, and your job is to deliver a good film. The rest of it is up to everybody else, really. Your job is to deliver it on time and budget, and make it something that audiences like. You know, um, so I hope that's what we've done. It must be strange because a lot of people obviously write films and then you get someone else that then will do- direct that person's work. But it must be nice to have both and be in full co- kind of control. It is, yeah. You know, everything I've done, even the stuff with Adam, we've always found a way to to do our own thing. We've been very lucky. I mean, you know, Adam and Joe Show was very much our creation. 
um, it wasn't really, you know, uh, 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 like a commission or it wasn't the creation of, of executives who were trying to design a successful show. It was a sort of ramshackle creation of two idiot men. And the radio show as well was a little niche where we could do sort of what we wanted and make our own songs and be silly in our own way. So, so yeah, to get to author something on this scale is, 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 is kind of amazing and a real privilege. Um, yeah, so I think I've been very lucky, yeah. Um, not to say that, that, that it wouldn't be cool to direct something someone else had written because there's a lot of brilliant people out there. I think it's just that case of, you know, someone gave me their podcast to edit. I'd feel wrong. I feel like it's, it's, I like the owning the whole thing. And I think you've been lucky that you've been able to do that so far. I think you're right. You know, it's, um, it's, 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 you know, it's tough out there. There's, in terms of the theatrical, like, landscape, most movies are franchises or brands or sequels or spin offs or something. So it is, rarer and rarer to get original movies certainly to get them theatrically distributed you know people like edgar and quentin are kind of exceptions to the rule now in terms of creating their own stuff so i feel very lucky to have made two movies like that you know and now obviously moving forward you've got snow crash is that right is that still going ahead are you still well that's something i've been doing since since 2012 i wrote it as a as a screenplay for paramount yeah and now it's kind of morphed into an idea for a tv show so that's one of those like projects that i've had on the on the boil for a while it's an it's an amazingly brilliant prescient sci-fi novel by a guy called neil stevenson and uh i love it and i'd love to find a way to do it but it's not it's not like definitely the next thing you know it's um it's something that's been that's just one of my little um, little pet projects. Is there, is there something out there that you still feel... I know you're early into your film directing career, but is there something that's really high up there on your kind of tick list that you really want to do? Yeah, there's a, well, I've got a bunch of other ideas. I don't really want to talk about them, though, because as soon as you tell one person about them, you get asked about them in every single interview ever. Yeah. And then if they don't happen, everyone goes, well, what happened to that project? Yeah, and suddenly you have to explain yourself. So, um, so uh, that is going to be my annoying answer. That's fine by me. Even though it would have been <laughs> nice to have an early scoop that you suddenly announce on this uh, podcast that you're doing Attack of the Block Two, or you know, you're gonna you're gonna get involved in a Marvel pick or something. But uh, who knows? Who knows? I don't come I mean, know. Okay then, and what about advice for up-and-comers? Because as you said, it's a very tough world to be in there. Everyone's streaming now. Not many people are going to the cinema as much as they used to. Um, those up-and-coming film directors or people that are listening to this podcast that have bought themselves a camera, probably not a Super 8 now, some 4K amazing super-duper camera, but those people that want to make a film, what advice do you give to those people? Because you've you know, you've had a great start and you're absolutely nailing it right now. Well, you're very kind to say that. I, I, I think, you know, um, I think my advice is just to make stuff. That's all I ever did. And all Adam and I ever did is even when it was, you know, we were at school making Super 8 stuff. We just made stuff after school on the weekends with whatever we could get our hands on. Um, 
And so don't wait for anybody to give you permission. Don't wait for somebody to pay you or tell you what to do. Just do it. And also for me, it's been very much about friends. Like, who will be the person that is still beside you working at three in the morning? Who will be the person that doesn't give up and turns up the next day and turns up the next day and actually finishes something with you? Like, who are the friends around you who are as serious as you are and who can make it enjoyable? And then, yeah, just produce stuff, become a, become a machine. Don't be too judgmental about yourself. Just keep working, keep churning it out. And then event, and oh, the other good thing to do is enter competitions, answer adverts, any opportunity you see to get your work in front of other people. Uh, because that's all we did. We just churned stuff out. And then one day we saw an advert in the New Musical Express for a late night Channel 4 comedy show and we sent stuff in. And that was the beginning of the whole thing, you know. So, so make stuff and show it to people however you can. And then don't give up if, they're, if they don't like it. Just do something else. Do something new. I think, that's pretty that I think that's pretty damn good. I just wish the enemy was still around that I could do that sort of <laughs> stuff. But <laughs> yeah, I think it's yeah. like a digital only now. Or I don't know. I sometimes sit at train there's, stations. There's lots of there's lots of really good um, short film competitions. Yeah, there's loads of stuff out there. I tell you, the other thing that's quite good is to be funny. Yeah. Because because comedy is free and making people laugh is free, and people like to laugh. And there's endless depressing short films out there. You know, there's endless super serious, bleak stuff about people who live by the seaside throwing themselves off cliffs or (laughs) awful stuff. And that's all great. Don't get me wrong. It's very important. But if you can be funny and make people laugh, then that is a good thing to do. And it often makes you stand out, I think. That's great advice. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and I do really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Not at all. Thank you very much. That was that was very good fun. Awesome. And congratulations on your podcast, man. It's really good. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Joe Cornish, and I love his sense of humour. It's very dry. Some people might not get it and not understand or, you know, really appreciate his style, but I love it, and it's right up my street. I love the discussion. I love the interview. You know when sometimes you worry about meeting these people that they you know you kind of build them up and hope they're going to be everything you want. It was great for me and Joe because he was more than I wanted and I just was blown away. And I actually kept in that bit about Mac and me at the start, not just because I love talking about Mac and me, but it just felt right and you got a bit of a behind the scenes feel. It's a bit different from what you get with Mark and me, but I thought, Do you know what? Let the listeners have it all. I hope you've loved the episode as much as me, and I hope you all go and check out The Kid Who Would Be King. It's getting great reviews, and I really think you should invest your money so we can get more films made like this. They don't come around enough, and we need more and more of them, and you need to support these sort of films. Don't torrent or download them. Go out and watch them in the cinema, because that means we can get more films from people like Joe Cornish made. I want to thank Joe for taking the time to come and talk to me on the podcast. It really has been a dream come true. I want to thank all my listeners for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, remember to get on markandme.com. On there, there's links to my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram, my email. I, I read every single email. I read every tweet, every Facebook comment, all the DMs, everything you send me, I make sure I read and respond, and I appreciate every single one of them. 
I'm not going to say who's on my next episode, you know that by now, but if you've enjoyed today, to get more and more episodes, please sign up to my Patreon. On there, you can sign up for as little as $1, which is about 70p, which won't even get you a packet of round trees, fruit pastels. But hey, if you can support me, it means I can go off and do more and more interviews. It is full on at the moment, I'm not going to lie, Skip to the End is going stronger than ever, and Mark and me is building at a huge rate, but it means I'm getting more and more interviews for you all, and I can't wait to release them all for you very, very soon. There will be episodes coming not even bi-weekly now, probably weekly because I've got a hell of a lot to get through, but hey, that's more for you and more for me. So thanks again for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Take care. (laughs) 